0: You're listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado. From our series, The Parables of Jesus, a look at the stories Jesus told and what they mean for us today. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com. Amen. Good morning. Welcome to Whitefields. We're glad you're here with us. Please open with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke. If you'd like to go through a text and look at it verse by verse and expound on it. So if you like to read the Bible on your phone, you're more than welcome to do that. We encourage you to use the UVersion Bible app because if you go into the menu and you go into the events section, you can find our notes and you'll see some notes that are on the screen and also a good, great way to interact with the sermon is just one more way that you can interact with the word, take notes, share things, etc., So the Gospel of Luke, chapter twelve. Right now we're in a series where we have been studying Jesus' parables. This is actually our last week in this series. Uh, next week we're gonna begin a new series in the Old Testament book of Jonah. You know, I think a lot of times when people think about Jonah, they get too hung up on the story about the big fish. Really, what Jonah's about is uh, the fish is kind of a, a side, really, because the story of Jonah is really about God's mission in the world and how he is calling us to be part of that mission and calling us to to do what he's all about. So I'm excited to begin that series with you next week. For this week, though, we are in this series. This is our final installment of the Parables of Jesus series. We've been in this for several weeks now, looking at different parables that Jesus spoke. You know that one-third of all the teaching that Jesus did was in the form of parables, which are short stories and illustrations which illustrate spiritual truths. So as we've been looking at this, we've been looking at these parables and considering what they meant for the people at that time, what they mean for us today, and how they apply to our lives here and now. The parable we'll be looking at today comes from Luke chapter 12, beginning in verse 13. So if you'd please follow along with me, I'll go ahead and read our text as we begin. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But Jesus said to him, Man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? You have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. This is God's word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord God, we come and we have come to your word desiring and expecting to hear from you. And so, Lord, we ask that you would do that, that you would speak to us this morning through this text, through these thoughts that we have about it. Lord, we pray that you would do a work in our hearts and our lives, whether you would challenge our minds. And Lord, we ask that truly we would hear these things, that they would not fall on hard ground or on infertile ground, but Lord, they'd fall into good soil, that we would be a good soil for the seed of your word. Your word would come into us, Lord, and that you would water the seeds that you planted of the gospel and of your word, that they would sprout up and bear much fruit in our lives for our good, for the good of the world, and for your glory. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So let me ask you a question. If you could know, if it was possible for you to know the exact day when you would die, would you want to know it? If you could know exactly how much time you have left here on earth, would you want to know it? Or would you rather say, you know what, I'd rather not. So my wife and I recently watched a movie uh, together called The Bucket List. It was on Netflix. We happened to cross it. It's, it's not a new movie. Maybe some of you have seen it. It's been out for a while. So it's basically about these two guys who get diagnosed with terminal cancer and what they do with that diagnosis, and what they do is that they make a list of the things that they want to do and accomplish before they die, and then they, they carry that out. Now, you might think that's a terribly morbid concept for a movie. I mean, who wants to watch a movie about some people who are planning for their death? And, uh, you know, many people in our society would say, I'd rather just focus on living my life and enjoying my life than thinking about how one day I'm going to die. It may be true, but I don't want to think about it. It's depressing. But one of the points that this movie tries to make is that when you come face to face with your own mortality, when you come face to face with the fact that you are going to die, and especially when you get that timeline, you realize how much time you have left and how short this life really is, it actually has a very liberating effect on your life, has a very positive effect on your life, because what it does is it gives you an incredible sense of clarity, clarity about what's really important, what you really value, what really are your goals. And so let me ask you this, what would you do differently if you knew that you didn't have a lot of time left here on earth? Maybe there's somebody who you've been estranged from and you say, I would wanna reach out to that person and reconcile with them before my time is up here on earth. Maybe you would say, I would probably change the way that I spend my time. I I spend an inordinate amount of time on things that in the big picture probably don't really matter as much. What things would you care more about? What things would you care less about If you knew that you didn't have much time left, how many of you would say, if I knew that I didn't have much time left, I would definitely say, I need to get right with God. You know, one of the things that has really caught my attention as we've been going through this series in the parables of Jesus, almost surprised me, I didn't expect for this to be the case, um, but I've just been so made aware of how much Jesus talked about this topic, This topic about how life is short, eternity is long, and we are racing towards eternity. And so the fact is, we we have to live our lives here and now in light of what is to come, eternity that's to come. Because here's the deal, you only have one life to live, one life to live. And what's so incredible about this life is that although it's incredibly short, the decisions that you make in this life can have an effect forever, for eternity, And that's either a scary proposition or a very exciting proposition. And so therefore, it's very important that we live our lives in view of eternity, in view of what comes after. The title of today's message is, One Life to Live. Let's look at our text, and then we'll we'll talk a little bit about what it means for us. Here in our text in Luke chapter 12, we read this little story. And there are three things that happen in this story. First of all, we see a request. Then we see a refusal And then we see a rebuke. And most of it's taken up with the rebuke. So a request, a refusal, and a rebuke. The request comes in verse 13. We read this. Someone in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Okay, now here's the setting. Let's just dial back a second. Look at the chapter as a whole, the the context that this fits into. A large crowd has gathered to listen to Jesus teach. And as Jesus is teaching, someone in the crowd raises their hand and asks a question. Now, let's think for a second. It's important that we realize what was Jesus teaching about when this happened. So here's what Jesus was teaching about. He was teaching about some pretty heavy stuff, stuff about life and death and heaven and hell. Here's what he says in verse 4. He says, I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body only, and after that can do no more. But I warn you who to fear. Fear him who after he has killed has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Jesus is talking about life and death, heaven and hell, eternal, epic, ultimate things. In verses 9 through 10, he talks about forgiveness and salvation and how all of us are one day going to stand before God and give an account. And in the middle of this teaching about life and death and these ultimate things, this guy raises his hand. I want you to just see how ridiculous this is. This guy raises his hand and says, uh, I've got a question. And Jesus says, all right, what's your question? And it's completely off topic. This guy's like, hey, uh, Jesus, so don't you think that the inheritance laws in this country are super messed up? Like, it's totally unfair. Cause like, I've got this brother and he's older than me and I don't think it's fair that just cause he's older than me that he should get more of the inheritance than I do. I think it should be 50-50, don't you think? So could you please tell my brother, who probably is standing right there next to him, could you please tell my brother?" That he has to split the inheritance with me evenly, 50-50. You have to wonder, has this guy even been listening to anything that Jesus has been talking about at all? Or or was he just kind of waiting for Jesus to take a breath so that he could raise his hand and ask this question? So after the request comes the refusal, which is in verse 14. Jesus said to him, man, who made me a judge or, or arbitrator over you? In other words, Jesus looks at this guy and says, this isn't my job. This isn't my business. This is your business. The two of you need to work this out between, the, between each other. I'm not getting involved in this, in other words. But he says this I'm not getting involved, but I will tell you this. And that's where we get to the rebuke, which is in verses 15 through 21. Jesus' rebuke of this man is actually probably not just a rebuke of this man, it's actually probably a rebuke of both of these men. And it's, his rebuke is this You guys, here's your real problem you're greedy. You're covetous. You're being covetous. The reason why the one brother wants more of the inheritance than what is customary or, or normal according to their laws is because he's greedy. He's covetousness, covetous of this wealth and this money. And on the other hand, the reason that the older brother is unwilling to share more with his younger brother is because he's greedy too. Sure, the law's on his side, but at the end of the day, he doesn't want to give up any of this money. And Jesus says, look, you guys want to talk about laws, you want to talk about money, but how about we talk about the real issue? Because the real issue is what's going on below the surface in your hearts, what's really causing this dispute between the two of you. He says, here's what it comes down to. You both care way too much about the wrong thing. You care way too much about the wrong thing. Here I am talking about heaven and hell and death and eternity and your eternal destiny of your soul and how you're gonna stand before God one day and God is offering you forgiveness of your sins and salvation and all you can think about is a couple thousand dollars? Are you serious? Jesus is telling them, you regard money and material things in a way that's dangerous. It's dangerous for your life and it's perilous for your soul. He says, let me explain to you why. And he says, I'm gonna tell you a story to illustrate this point. He says in verse 15, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness for one's life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. You know, it's like we've always said, some people live this life as if it's a contest. He who dies with the most stuff wins, right? And he's saying, watch out for that. That is not the sum total of your life, how much stuff you have or what you have. And Jesus says, let me explain to you how foolish it is. Let me explain to you how dangerous it is to have the wrong attitude towards money and material things. Let me tell you a story. There was a rich man. This rich man, he, he had a plot of land, he worked that plot of land, and his land produced plentifully. In other words, this man took what God gave him, right? The gifts of God's grace, which are good soil, rain upon that soil, good weather, the seeds. He didn't create any of those things. They're all given to him by God. But he took what God gave him and he added to it hard work. And as a result of that hard work, he experienced success financially. In fact, he was so successful that he literally had more money than he knew what to do with, right? It's kind of like everybody's got problems, but I sure wish I had that problem, right? Like if I could choose problems, I might choose that one. Like more money than I know what to do with, that sounds like a better problem than maybe my problems, right? Now nevertheless, this great success did cause some anxiety verse 17 he says what am i going to do just like all the hip-hop songs say more money more problems that's how it goes but this man came up with a plan he's going to build bigger barns and then he's going to have everything he needs and maybe he'll never even have to work another day in his life he's just going to build bigger barns put all this stuff in it and then he can enjoy it for the rest of his life to the fullest notice what he says to himself he says soul Now that's an interesting way to put it right because we're talking about people's souls And he says, soul, that's important. Now you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. And God looks at this man and he says, you're a fool. You're a fool because this night your life will be required of you. Your soul will be required of you. That's pretty strong language, right, to call this guy a fool? Why why would he call this man a fool? I mean, he's not doing anything particularly abnormal, is he? He made a lot of money, has a lot of stuff. And he just wants a place to store it. And he's like, sweet, I don't have to work anymore. Here's why the man was called a fool. He wasn't called a fool because he was rich. He wasn't called a fool because he was successful. In fact, he was very smart in those areas. And that's the thing you have to understand. This man was very smart with how he did his job and his vocation here on earth. He was a fool though, because he gave no thought to what comes afterwards. He gave no thought to eternity. He made no preparations for eternity. And he says this night, your life will end and you will have nothing to show for it. Your soul is required of you is what it says. You realize that's the language of obligation. Your soul is required of you. That's the language of obligation. This man had an obligation to God. He owed his life and everything he had to God but most of all, he owed his soul to God. For each and every one of us, you need to know this, the day is gonna come when your life will be required of you and you will have to give an account for your soul to God. And here's the point of this parable. If you tune out and play Candy Crush for the rest of the sermon, listen to this. You are a fool if you don't prepare for that day. That's the point. If you spend the days of your life consumed with what you have or with what you want to get or with enjoying the things of this world and you don't give adequate and wise preparation for eternity to come, you're a fool. This man's problem was that he acted like this world is all that there is. Now everyone around this man in this story, they would have looked at him and they would have said, he's a success. But God looked at him and said, you're a fool. This rich man in this parable, see here's another thing. He thought that everything he had was for himself. He worshiped the unholy trinity of me myself and I notice it says in the text in verse 18 he says my crops my goods my barns my soul my 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 everything was about him nothing was done for God nothing was done for others but what this parable points out is that in the end he he says my 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 but none of it's actually his he can't keep any of it he can't take any of it with him when he's gone Everything he had, he thought it was his, but in reality, it was only on loan to him temporarily. And one day in his life, he's gonna check out and he'll have to leave all this stuff there. Even his soul wasn't even his own. It belonged to God and God required it of him. And when he passed out of this world, he had nothing to show for it and his soul was dead to God. And Jesus says, this is a tragedy. Jesus says, so is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. This man's problem was not that he was rich and successful. It was that he was not rich towards God. So the question is, how do you be rich towards God? We're going to talk about that. Jesus is telling this parable as a warning. And the warning is this. You've got one life to live. One life. Don't waste it. The decisions you make, the things that you do in this life can have an effect for eternity. And that's either a very terrifying proposition or a very exciting one. But don't forget it and live accordingly. The way to waste your life, according to this parable, is to live only for yourself and to live only for the here and now as if this life is all there is. And the problem with material wealth is that sometimes it can cloud our thinking. It can distract us so much that if you're not careful about it, it can distract you and blind you and cloud your thinking from the spiritual reality. But it doesn't have to be that way. And that's the good news of this parable. That's why he gives us this warning. Because it doesn't have to be this way. Your life doesn't have to end the way this man's life did. It can end with a different ending, a good ending. Instead, you can choose to live this life in light of eternity to come, and you can use your material possessions to make a difference now that will last forever. Now, before we go on, let me just say this. What inevitably happens when we read the parable of the rich fool is this. Oh, excuse me for a second. We tend to presume that this story is about somebody else but not about us, right? This story, this story speaks to somebody else but not about us because surely all of us would say, I'm not a rich person. There are a lot of other rich people. I know where they live, but I'm not them. But I want you to understand this. Historically, globally, we are the rich. We are the richest people who have ever lived in the history of the world. I want you to let that sink in. Jesus, when he's telling this parable, people at that time, they're thinking about rich people. They're thinking about people who do not even live as well as you live today, right? We are the richest people who have ever lived in the history of the world. We live at a level that kings and queens did not even enjoy in the past. And even if you look at the world today, we are the 1%, right? We don't talk about the 1%. Globally, we are the 1%. We are the richest people in the world. And so what we all tend to do is we tend to look at somebody who's one rung above us on the class ladder and assume that this parable is about them. But I want you to know this, and you need to read this with this in mind. It's not about somebody else. This is about us. There's no way around it. The average American home in 1950 was 1,000 square feet. By 1970, it was 1,500 square feet. By the year 2000, it was 2,200 square feet. That's as far as the research I had go. Who knows? Maybe it's more now. But here's the point. In the last 25 years, the average family size in the United States has decreased by 25%, but the average home size has increased by 50%. You know what that's called in, in parable terms? Bigger barns. It's called bigger barns. We're building bigger barns. Now, I want you to understand, is that bad? No. Is that a sin to build bigger barns and be rich and successful and have a lot of stuff? No. That's not the point. I only say that to say this. We are the rich. We cannot get away with thinking that this parable is not about us because it absolutely is. See, what happened is that we, we fill up our gigantic houses. We say, well, we can't have any more kids because... We got to have room for our stuff, so we uh, have all this stuff, right? And then we, we don't have any more room for our stuff, so we start putting it in our garage. And then when our garage is filled up, then we came up with a very American solution, which is called the personal storage facility. Personal storage facility. What is a personal storage facility? It's basically another barn in addition to the barns that you already have, where you keep the stuff that you don't want to keep at your main barns that you actually use, Check this out. Did you know that the United St- in the United States there are five times more personal storage facilities than there are Starbucks? So if you feel like there's a Starbucks on every corner, there are five times more personal storage facilities. And that's not units. That's actually complexes. Five times for every Starbucks, there are five personal storage complexes here in the United States. And you know what's actually kind of interesting about these storage facilities is that they are this, about the size and about made of the same materials as the homes which the majority of the world lives in, right? cinder blocks and metal roofs and no electricity, right? And so what most of the world puts their family in, we put our stuff in. Now, I don't at all say that to make you feel bad. I only say that to say this, we are the rich. So don't, when you hear this parable, don't say, well, those pesky rich people, I sure hope that they hear this later on on the radio. no, no. We are those people, and this parable is directed to us. You cannot get away from that. You know, and here's the thing that that makes us remember. A lot of people would say, if I had more money, well, if I had more money, well, then I would be generous, be totally generous with it. Well, I'm here to tell you, you are the richest people in the world. You're the richest people in the history of the world. And what that means is that if you're not generous, if I'm not generous, it's probably not a matter of income as much as it is a matter of lifestyle. And so I want to just challenge you in this to to hear this parable and to really take it to heart and ask God what he would have you do in response. Will you be a rich fool who is poor to God or will you take this one life that you've been given and all the resources that God has entrusted to you and use them for something that really matters both now and forever? There are three topics that Jesus brings up here and juxtaposes. I want you to see this because it's, it's pretty important. So three things, and, and we'll move through them. First of all, he talks about two different kinds of contentment. Two different kinds of contentment. Then, he talks about two different kinds of foolishness, and then he talks about two different kinds of riches. Okay, Two different kinds of contentment, two different kinds of foolishness, and two different kinds of riches. Two different kinds of contentment. In other words, there's a good kind of contentment and that God wants us to have, and then there's also a bad kind of contentment that God doesn't want us to have. Likewise, there's a good kind of discontentment and there's a bad kind of discontentment. The bad kind of discontentment is what we're talking about here in this parable. It's what the Bible calls covetousness. Now, covetousness is kind of a word that we don't use every day. So here, here's what the dictionary says. The dictionary defines covetousness as an inordinate desire for wealth or possessions. Here's what Jesus says. Be on guard, guard your hearts against covetousness. In our society, I think you really do have to guard your heart against covetousness because our entire economy is based on stirring up covetousness in our hearts so that we buy stuff, right? Stirring up discontentedness. So I realize not all marketing is about this, but a lot of marketing is about creating discontentment so that you'll buy things that you don't need with money that you don't have to impress people you don't like. And the way they do that is by stirring up discontentedness in you so that you covet things. So we actually do have to actually be on guard against this because it's just the water we swim in. Our society doesn't tend to think of coveting as a sin. Americans don't think of coveting as a sin. We think of it as normal. But here's the thing. It's actually one of the Ten Commandments, right? Thou shalt not covet. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's husband or wife. You shall not covet your neighbor's maidservant or manservant, or I think we could call those personal electronics at this point in our lives, right? You have a personal assistant on your phone. Or their ox or their donkey, we call those uh, cars nowadays, and nor anything that belongs to your neighbor. So in case you don't have an ox or a donkey, just know that it's all covered in the anything that belongs to your neighbor. And if, to even go one step further, here's what the Bible says about covetousness. In Colossians 3 verse 5, it says, covetousness is idolatry. Let's just call it what it is. An idol is anything that you worship other than God. It's something that you live for. It's something that you're willing to sacrifice for. An idol is something that has mastery over your life. And the way to combat idolatry, by the way, how do you combat idolatry? If idolatry is worship, then how do you combat idolatry? You combat idolatry by worshiping the true and living God. That's why the first commandment inoculates you against breaking the other commandments. In other words like this, the first commandment, worship God and him alone. Martin Luther said this, if you keep the first commandment, worship God and him alone, then you will naturally keep all the other commandments too. And ultimately the reason that we break all the other commandments is because we don't keep the first commandment, which is worship God alone. You know, there's a good kind of contentment that God wants us to have. 1 Timothy chapter 6 says this, godliness With contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into this world and we can take nothing out of this world. But if we have food and clothing, then with these we shall be content. See, this is the good kind of contentment. This is the attitude of your heart that says, I will let my heart rest in the knowledge of God's love and providence for me in my life. It's the attitude of trust that says, God, whatever circumstances I am in the midst of right now, I know that I am here by the grace of God. And that you are with me, God, in these circumstances and you have promised to work all things for my ultimate good and for your ultimate glory. And and in these circumstances, there's something that you wanna teach me and there's probably a way that you wanna use me. So rather than just looking to the next thing, what's coming next or complaining about where I'm at today, I will be content and I will let my heart rest in the knowledge of God's loving providence over my life because I can be sure that he is fully committed to me because he gave his son for me. He did not even withhold his own son from me, but he gave him up for me. How will he not also with him do all things for me? So I will be content with where I am today. I will not let covetousness, I will not let jealousy, I will not let greed take root in my heart. In that same section, it goes on from verse 9 in that section to say this. But those who desire such things, those who desire to be rich... They fall into temptation and they fall into a trap and many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Now, you need to make sure you see that right. It's not money itself that's the root of all kinds of evil. Money money can be harmful or it can be helpful. It can be hazardous or it can be helpful. It's the love of money, which is what? It's what we're talking about. Covetousness. Jesus says, guard your heart against it. And Paul goes on, he says, it's through the craving of this that some have wandered away from the faith. He says covetousness has actually led people to wander away from the faith, wanting things that they don't have so badly that they wander away from the faith and they pierce themselves with many pangs. But I think this is key. A lot of times this verse gets left out when people read this section. Verse 11, he says, but as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Flee covetousness, but what should you pursue? Run towards godliness, righteousness, Faith, love, steadfastness, and gentleness. Pursue those things. Run after them. You know, one of the problems with how our culture thinks about wealth is that it thinks only in outward terms, right? So our culture thinks in terms of rich and poor because it's only looking at outward things but what the bible does it gives us a theological grid to measure by and it says it's not just rich and poor that matters you've also got to add another axis to your grid right so you actually create a grid on the one hand you've got rich and poor on the other hand you've got righteous and unrighteous uh, godly and ungodly so you can think about it as a grid and what the bible would say is what's most important is not whether you're rich or poor it's whether you're righteous or unrighteous if you only think in terms of rich and poor, you know what you end up with? You end up with either prosperity theology or a poverty theology, right? So prosperity theology says if you love God, then you should be rich. Poverty theology says if you love God, then you should be poor because it's better to be poor and that's how you get people who take these vows of poverty and, and things like that. The Bible would say, no, it's, it's the wrong terms to think in. It's not rich or poor that matters. You've got to think in theological terms. Righteous and unrighteous, that's the primary. So think about it as a grid. What that means is that that we could put people in and I guess four quadrants on a grid. So you've got some who are righteous and rich. These are people who are honest, they they work hard, they invest smart, they take care of their employees if they have employees, and, and they just happen to make a lot of money, and they love God, and they use their wealth in righteous ways. They take care of their families, they pay their bills, they help other people who are in need, and they further the work of God using what they've been given. They spread the gospel, they further God's mission in the world. It's totally possible to be rich and righteous. Money is interesting because here's the thing, money represents value, and what you do with your money represents what you value in your heart. I'll say that again. What you do with your money represents what you value in your heart. And that's why 11 of Jesus' 30 parables deal with our attitude towards money. 11! That's why I've been really surprised about as we've gone through his parables. It's like every other week, right? 11 out of 30, Jesus' 39 parables deal with our attitudes towards money and material possessions. In other words, 28% or 30% of the time that Jesus opened his mouth, he was talking about this topic. Why? Because money represents value, and what you do with money reveals what's going on in your heart. You know, when we were missionaries, there was this guy who supported us, and he was a wealthy person, lived in a nice house, and he drove nice cars, um, but he was, the, he was the most generous person that I've ever known. And I remember one time we were talking, he was at our house in, in Hungary, and we were talking, and he says, you know, Nick, um, you know, I'm not good at a lot of things. I'm not good at teaching the Bible. I'm not called to be a pastor. There's just one thing that I'm really good at. I've always been good at it. I'm just really good at making money. I I don't even have to, it doesn't even feel hard. I just, it's just the way I think and look at the world. And he says, so I figure, hey, maybe this is God's Gift that he gave me so that I could use it to serve him. And this man has done absolutely that. He's been so generous to people in need and supported more good gospel-centered ministry all over the world than any other single person that I've ever seen. He is that category. He's wealthy and righteous. Next, you, you also have some people who are rich, but they're not righteous. They're unrighteous. These are people who have money, but they're not godly with it. They, they worship their wealth rather than using their wealth to worship God third category right we could talk about people who are righteous but they're poor right so they put in a hard day's work and honest day's work they just don't make a lot of money it's a lot of people around the world actually um but they're good stewards of what they have they're generous to others they give back to God and for his work in the world you know there was a woman in the Bible who was righteous and poor she was a widow she didn't have much she she wasn't even on social security they didn't have social security then she had these two coins that weren't even made of metal I mean they're just really nothing And she was so poor, but out of her poverty, she was generous with what she had. And Jesus exalted her as an example. He said, look at this. This is what it means to be poor and to be righteous. Jesus himself was was an example of somebody who was righteous and poor. Have you ever noticed the fact that in the Bible, Jesus always seems to be borrowing stuff? Right? Like, he's like, uh, he wants to preach from a boat, but he doesn't have a boat, so he's always borrowing somebody's boat, and then uh, he wants to make a point with a coin. He doesn't even have his own coin, right? He has to borrow a coin. Somebody got a coin. I want to make a point here. He rides into Jerusalem on a borrowed donkey. He has his last supper in a borrowed room. He says, basically, I'm homeless, right? I have nowhere to lay my head. Even when he was growing up, his dad was a manual laborer. He wasn't rich, but he was righteous. And then, of course, you've got some people who are unrighteous and poor. Proverbs has a lot to say about this, right? Some people are poor because they make bad decisions and because they they don't do good things with the money that they get. They spend it unwisely and they don't use it well. And being generous isn't even on their radar. And so the Bible would say, don't make it your goal in life to be rich. Make it your goal in life to be righteous. And be a good steward of what God has given you. Be a conduit and not a reservoir, right? Like a conduit through whom God can bless other people and accomplish his work in the world rather than a reservoir that just kind of hoards it all for yourself. And so God says, be content on one hand, flee covetousness and pursue, and that's where the discontentment comes in. Don't be satisfied with where you are in regard to God. Pursue righteousness and godliness and faith and love. Don't be content in that area. You know, our theme for this year as a church, we've told you over and over is, forward to what lies ahead. This comes from Philippians chapter 3 where Paul the Apostle says, I don't view that I've attained yet. I press on towards what God has for me in Christ. And so as a church, we, we want to do that collectively. We want to move forward. We don't want to just settle into where we're at. We want to move forward and take the next steps to all that God has for us. We want to press on. We want to pursue righteousness and godliness and God's calling for our lives and for our church and, and to see what God's dreams for our church accomplish. And I encourage you on a personal level to ask that question, God, what is the next step for me to take as a disciple of Jesus? For some of you, that next step is to be baptized. You're going to do that next Sunday. For others of you, it might be taking on some sort of service or ministry or some area of your life where God has been showing you, okay, this is the next step that you need to take in your walk with me. We encourage you, we want you to be thinking in those terms. What's the next step that God wants me to take? So be content on the one hand, don't fall into covetousness, but on the other hand, don't be content in the sense of continue pursuing righteousness and godliness and faith and love and steadfastness and gentleness. The second one, two kinds of foolishness. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, he says, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. See, this is the whole point of the gospel. It's it's so opposite of what you, you would expect. So Jesus comes and he wins through losing. Right? He's victorious by being defeated. Jesus became great by emptying himself. He got glory by emptying himself of his glory and becoming a servant. And the way that we come to him is by humbling ourselves and admitting that we're spiritually empty and then he fills us up and lifts us up. See, there are two kinds of foolishness. There's a way that the world calls wise, but in this parable, God calls it foolish. Living only for yourself, acting as if this world is all there is, just getting more stuff and bigger barns. And then there's a way of following Jesus that's different, that the world considers foolishness. Loving our enemies, serving others, turning the other cheek, forgiving those who sin against us. It's the way that says, if you want to find real life, then you've got to give up your life for Christ's sake and for the sake of the gospel. It's the way that says, the way to be truly great is not by exalting yourself, but by humbling yourself. The way to be truly rich is by becoming radically generous. This sounds like foolishness to some, but it's the way of the gospel, it's the way of Jesus, and it's the wisdom of God. And finally, two different kinds of riches. The final statement in verse 21, So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. This tells us that it's possible to be financially rich but spiritually poor. See, when we sin against God, the the picture the Bible uses is that we're accruing a debt. That's why, for example, in the Lord's Prayer, Jesus teaches us to pray, Father, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. He's using debt as a synonym for sin. Imagine if every month you got a bill in the mail from God, like the utility company sends you a bill, right, or the credit card company, and it's itemized, like sins of commission, thoughts, words, deeds, and then sins of omission, like these are the things you should have done, but you didn't do them. And at the end of the bill, there's your balance. And every month, the bill just keeps getting bigger, past due, late notice, accrued interest, right, like final notice, and you know that one day There's gonna come a knock at the door. You don't know when that day is gonna be, but the knock is gonna come someday to collect on that debt, and you know that you will be completely incapable of paying it. And of course, you're scared because you know that in that case, what it's gonna cost you, it's gonna cost you your very soul. And then one month, you get a bill in the mail, and you open it up, and it says, paid in full, including all future debts. That's the message of the gospel. The message of the gospel is that God became one of us Jesus, though he was rich for your sake, he became poor. He lived without sin. He went to the cross. He died for you in your place for your sins. He made himself a ransom. You see, what, that, what a ransom means is paying someone's debt so they can be set free from it. He paid your debt before God. He ransomed you. And in him, you can become rich towards God. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9, it says, Consider the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. That though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. The message of the gospel is that God left his heavenly throne and he walked our dusty streets. He traded a crown of glory for a crown of thorns. He traded honor for shame. He traded heaven for a cross and the grave, all for your sake. So that by his poverty, you might become rich. That's how much he loves you. Because what Jesus did for you, God not only forgives your debt, that's just the beginning. What's great about this is that he not only forgives your debt but he accounts his riches to you. Imagine if the richest person in the world added your name to their bank account in an instant. Everything that they have would become yours as well. And that's what we're told in Ephesians chapter 1. Paul says this. He says, "Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And then he goes on to list what some of those blessings, what some of those riches are that we have in Christ. He says, In Christ, God chose you, God adopted you into his family, he redeemed you, he forgives you, he makes known to you the mystery of his will, and in him you receive an inheritance. Do you remember how this whole thing began? It began with an argument over what? Over an inheritance. Somebody was upset because he wasn't getting his share of what he felt was fair in the inheritance. And Jesus rebuked him and he said, friend, you focused on the wrong kind of riches. You're focused on the wrong inheritance. If you want an inheritance in this life, man, but if, if you only knew, if you only knew the inheritance that I could give you, you want riches in this life, but if you only knew the riches that I'm offering you, you would realize that this person who lives only for material riches in this life is a fool compared to the person who seeks true riches. You have only one life to live. It will soon be past. You need to plan for what comes next. Think about your next station. Think about eternity. Some of you here, you need to make sure that you're ready to meet your maker. You need to get right with God. You need to know that you have received the riches of his grace and mercy that he offers you in Jesus by putting your faith and your trust in him alone and what he did to save you. And I encourage you to do what Jesus said. Rather than living for earthly treasure, which moth and rust destroy, which thieves break in and steal, lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust can destroy, where thieves cannot break in and steal. You see, since nothing on this earth will really last, since you can't keep any of it anyway, use the things that you have now. Invest your time, talents, money, influence, everything that you have in something that really matters, something that will last forever and which will reach eternal dividends. Use what you have now in such a way that there is glory in heaven. If you do those things, then your life will not have been wasted and you will not be a fool. You'll be wise and you'll be rich towards God. Amen? Lord, we thank you for the abundant riches that you offer us in Christ Jesus. Lord, I pray for those of us here today and as we, we think about the day of our death, Lord, I pray that it would not be a frightening thing for us but that it would be a hopeful thing because we know that this life is not all there is. Lord, I pray for any of us here who say, you know what, I am scared about standing before God because I know that I, I, haven't, I need to get right with God. Lord, I pray that they would do that today before they leave, that they would receive by faith your riches for them in Christ Jesus, your grace and your mercy. Lord, I pray that they would trust in it, that they would cling to it, that they would depend on it and they would hope only in what you have done for them and in Jesus. And Lord, for the rest of us, Lord, we want our lives to count. We don't wanna be that rich fool. We wanna be those who are rich towards God. So Lord, would you do those things in your life? Would you give us that healthy kind of discontentment that pursues righteousness and godliness? Lord, would you help us to be fools for Christ in all the right ways that we might be rich towards you? In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com.